The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran we are almost seven well not you and me but the main street vegan show will turn seven on june 19th and ever since we started back in 2012 i've closed this show with the same tagline God bless you, eat your veggies. That's my way of tying in this program's host network, Unity Online Radio, the radio arm of the Unity Churches, and the topic of this podcast, Vegan Living in All Its Aspects. I like this tagline, and I just might keep it, but just as the cells of the body renew themselves every seven years, it might be time for a renewed closer, and that's where you come in. If you have ideas for a lovely way to end this program that acknowledges both spirituality and veganism, please let me know that. You can either post in the Main Street Vegan listeners group on Facebook, or you can go to my website, MainStreetVegan.net, and just click on contact and send me your idea. And if it happens that your tagline is chosen, you will get a one hour consultation with me on just about anything to do with your vegan journey. So think about it. And thank you. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, your host for this program. And today we're going to talk about kids and later about having babies and the spirituality of compassionate living. After the break, I'll introduce Dr. Heidi Roberts. Did I say that wrong? Heidi, Holly, Holly, oops, Dr. Holly Roberts, who is both an OBGYN and a PhD in Eastern religion and philosophy. And right now, let's talk about the kids, animal hero kids, to be specific with Susan Hargreaves. Susan it has been doing this for a very long time. She went vegan way back, I think, in 1985. She investigated stockyards and slaughterhouses in direct action and civil disobedience. She became a humane educator, and she is founder of Animal Hero Kids, and she is also an author of Animal Hero Kids, Voices for the Voiceless. Welcome, Susan Hargreaves. 
Thank you so much, Victoria. It's a complete pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much oh, for having me. It's a show. pleasure to speak with you, too. Now, I learned about your work because you appear in Thomas Jackson's wonderful film, A Prayer for Compassion, of which I am grateful to be producer. And it was just so cool to see you with the kids and interacting and getting young people to really be animal heroes. So how did this all get started? Well, when I was nine years old, I was taken into a chicken hatchery. And if you've ever been to a chicken hatchery, it's not such a wonderful place to be, especially if you're a male chick. And when I saw the male chicks being gassed and suffocated at nine years old, I looked around at the adults in the room for them to do something because I knew that, oh, my goodness, look at all these baby chicks dying. And the adults didn't do anything because it was business as usual. And I felt powerless to do anything at all. And I grew up and became a really great, uh, absolutely obsessed activist, you might say. And then one day a light bulb went off and I realized that to prevent animal cruelty is education. We have to foster empathy in the young that's the building block to compassion. If we don't have that building block, then we're never going to prevent animal cruelty and it will never be solved. So I started from the beginning and started empowering kids to be kind with examples of kids their own age who are doing incredible, amazing things for other animals. And so when I go into a school, I do school assemblies my background is early childhood education, and I empower those kids. They are absolutely so thrilled that there's an eight-year-old that just banned electroshock prods for being used on elephants in the circus. And there's a 12-year-old that just helped ban fox penning in Florida. So it's amazing the things that the kids do, and that's, uh, that's my goal is to empower wow. more and more and more children and teens. I love it. So your book, let's talk about that for a minute. Animal Hero Kids, Voices for the Voiceless. What do we learn there? The Animal Hero Kids, Voices for the Voiceless book, we donate it to each school library after every presentation. So I'll do a school assembly presentation. And these days, schools, you can be populations from up to 1,000 to even 3,000. I was at one school. So I may do three different assemblies, and they'll hear stories from that book and see the photos of the kids with the animals that they've rescued. So we have one story of um, Elena, who was a 4-H um, person who had a little baby pig. She was a teenager, and the pig grew up, and then the end of the project is taking the pig to the fair so they'll be end up slaughtered and she didn't want to do that to her pig and she lived in Texas of all places and she ended up saving her pig called Gizmo so I'll tell that story and then they'll see a picture of Gizmo and Elena and one thing I've noticed with the kids is that they clap at each rescue no matter what species the animal is they will clap just as much at a dog being rescued as a pig being rescued or an elephant being rescued. It's exactly the same level of glee in that room. Wow. And our goal is, oh. yeah, 
Our goal is to put an Animal Hero Kids book in every school library across the United States. And we're a small nonprofit, all volunteer, and the way we're going to achieve that is we're asking people to help by going to animalherokids.org and actually sending a message to a very compassionate talk show host who likes kids and animals. And I bet you, you can guess who that is. Why don't you tell us? It's Ellen. So we want to get a message to Ellen to ask her to help us put the Animal Hero Kids Voices for the Voiceless book into every school library. Wow, what a great idea. And in the meantime, I guess we can all just order copies and donate them to our libraries. Yes, and um, you can go on our website to learn how to help the book uh, goal. You could order one for yourself, um, and a certain percentage of that would go towards the goal, especially if you order it from us. I mean, it's a 300-page book that's full color. It's Mm. expensive to print. We're in the process of updating it, revising it. Um, We're perhaps going to be doing one that's 100 pages, which will be less you know, expensive to print. But meanwhile, um, I don't want to take away any of the kids' stories that are in oh, the book. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're very precious. I'm sure very precious to the kids, but also to other kids who read them because sometimes it's that one story that's removed. <laughs> that is the one yeah. that would really, really speak to somebody. So when you go into these schools, Susan, I think if I could see it from the point of view of a parent who's been very conventionally educated, and I believe that meat and and dairy and these other foods are necessary for children to grow. Maybe there's some of these uh, industries in, in my family. And you go in and you talk to these kids about, say, going into this egg hatchery. What kind of response happens when the kids go home and tell their parents what they learned? Well, first of all, I've seen a marked change. In the last 30 years since I started going into the schools, it went from don't mention anything to do with factory farmed animals or you'll be blacklisted to please talk about that, especially for middle schools and high schools. They're actually asking for that information now, the teachers are. I go in under the bullying prevention hat, the empowering youth, fostering self-esteem, and educating about being kind to all. That's every single other animal. And whenever I can, they have vegan food after the presentation. And then I also give coupons, thanks to Tofurky and other companies that give me coupons to give out to the kids to take to their parents. So it's done in a way where it's mainstream, and that's that's the only way to be successful in the schools. It has to be a mainstream message, but yet if you look, you know, under the under the veil, it's actually not as mainstream as as you would initially think. I mean, everybody, very few people want to see cruelty to animals. Very very few people would be really purposely cruel to a dog, as you know. And then uh, when they hear about pigs being rescued and the story of, like, Stella, one of the chapter stories is how Stella got her groove back. 
They can't help but be enamored. Stella was a pig that fell off the back of a um, transport truck on the way to slaughter in central Florida. And a 12-year-old girl rescued her. The pig had road rash, and um, the before and after picture is just beautiful because Stella, after, when she's all better, is right beside her her little um, her little uh, pig pool. And she's at Ruderville in uh, in Gainesville, so oh. very happy pig. Yes, so they they really respond to the fact that their child is getting kindness education. The teachers respond to the fact that they are achieving some of their goals for absolutely no cost because we never charge. So we reach a lot of the benchmarks that the schools need to reach for their testing. Like, for instance, uh, a child will realize that they're one interdependent among the web of life on the earth. That's one of the, the benchmarks that they have to realize for their testing. And they they find that out in some of our stories. Wow. So the bull, yeah, and bullying prevention is huge and also violence prevention. Because if you're fostering empathy and someone can put themselves in another's place, human or non-human, then it's less likely there's going to be violence or, or bullying in that school. Of course. So I've heard it said so many times, and I believe it with everything that's in me, that we are born kind. I mean, I saw it with my daughter. We had three cats when she was born. And so just as a tiny little infant, you know, we have all these great pictures where she's on the floor with the cats. They're like siblings. And and so it came from the beginning. When is it, do you think that this starts getting educated out of us? When do we start to become the kind of people who can walk away from other beings, who can eat the flesh of slaughtered beings? What happens when and how do we fix it? I find that children from a very early age actually don't really want to eat meat. I don't know about you, but I didn't like the taste of it. They had to, I had to be forced to eat it. I remember telling my mom that the liver, that she was uh, saying that I have to eat, the veins were snapping in my mouth. Mm-hmm. I don't think, um, originally, you're exactly right, I don't think children have any clue often that they're actually eating animals. And one of my dreams is to have my own education center where we do tours where the kids meet the animals. But I did have like a partial realization of that dream at a place where I was and I was giving a tour and um, I was uh, showing one of the chickens who was having a dust bath, a sand dust bath. And it was Girl Scout group that I was talking to. And one of the Girl Scout groups said to their mom who was there, so is that the kind of chickens we eat? And the mom said, no, no, that's a different chicken. chicken. Really different, huh? (laughs) Yes. So it's this separation that begins. It's like the great lie. It's like what's happening behind closed doors that nobody wants to talk about to children. Because most children, if they find out that they're eating uh, an animal's leg, uh, like they're eating babe, are horrified. And we have all seen the videos where the kids realize it mm-hmm. on YouTube. 
that that's the case. So kids are naturally compassionate, and they just need to know the full story. I'm not saying the horrific part that we've all seen, the heartbreaking moments that we have emblazoned on our brain of what's actually happening to animals, because we certainly don't want to traumatize the children, but um, they are naturally compassionate and society says, oh, everybody does this. We've been doing this for years. Just eat it. It's good for you. Now it's changing a lot. There was a time, one of my costume characters for the early elementary grades is a great big costume character cow, Ronnie V. Cow. Mm -hmm. And um, I say, now what do you think V stands for? It's very interactive, the program. Can anybody tell me what Ronnie V. Cow stands for, the V? And in one Palm Beach school, they said vodka, actually. But in most cases, they say vegan or vegetarian, even if they're in like third grade, second grade, and they say so-and-so's a a vegetarian, so-and-so's a vegan, and they point to another child in the assembly. Or this Mm -hmm. teacher is a vegan. So it's more known And so more accepted. What I want to do, of course, with Animal Hero Kids is to build on that. So I'm going into the schools and I'm not preaching. They're telling me who's a vegan, what that that means. The kids are volunteering information. They're asking me questions. I'm not there saying, do this, do that. That's a big difference. That makes sense. And yet, you don't hide the veganism part. Uh, How do you do that? How do you broach that? Well, um, the fact is is that um, I'm fortunate in that I'm able to do vegan food at every every school that allows me to. So the kids will build a vegan hero sandwich. So I will bring things from their from the local Publix, local grocery store, because that's important. I can't do all sorts of, you know, it has to be recognizable, available, affordable, and we'll bring it in and then they will build their own sandwich. And then they would have just heard or seen the photos of the animals who were saved by kids like them. And then they'll, they'll have the conversation. So what is this? This is not chicken? This is, uh, no, the garden is crispy tenders or, oh, so this is not meat? No, that's, uh, so it's it's hands-on. They're actually tasting the food. And then they get to go home and talk about it in a way where it's not this lady came in and told us to do this or this lady came in and showed us a terrible photo. Ah. So is this something, Susan, that you just do yourself there in Florida or are there people around the country who could become your volunteers and do this in their areas as well? What I have been searching for are people who are comfortable enough that would go through a storytelling, sort of a 101 um, and what Animal Hero Kids is about, the history of Animal Hero Kids, and be able to go into the schools with the book, Animal Hero Kids Voices for the Voiceless, and be a storyteller. And just simply tell the stories in the book, but don't go any further. Just mm-hmm. tell the stories in the book. Because I have to be careful when other people are going in. First of all, they have to be have a background check. And uh, they have to be licensed. They actually, you have to 
here in Florida, you go and you get fingerprinted before you go into the schools and you have a mm-hmm. little, you know, your driver's license and they know who you are if you have any anything in your records and all that stuff. So you have to be screened, let's say. And the job of the storytellers is just to go in and engage the children telling the stories. Now, it could be paraphrasing, you know, you don't want to tell six-year-olds, um, you're not going to read a three-page story, you have to paraphrase it. So you'll learn all that. And we have YouTube videos that were taken of me doing presentations that it's so it's easy to learn, actually, as long mm-hmm. as you watch it. And you have to realize that you're not in there saying, do this, do that. It's cruel. You know, you just have right. to, it's a balancing act, really. Is and, what it is. and people can find you and get this information on your website, animalherokids.org. On Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Animal Hero Kids, and uh, email education at animalherokids.org. And we will put all that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So I mentioned earlier, Susan, that you are featured in A Prayer for Compassion, and you're working on your own Animal Hero Kids documentary. Tell us about that. Um, we're actually doing two versions of a documentary, one that specifically will be used for schools for early elementary grades, that is Mother Nature, which is one of the educational storytellers characters, um, which is basically me in a cape. (laughs) And Mother Nature and Animal Hero Kids meet kids who are helping animals and meet the animals who have been helped. And we have all the different so-called categories of animals, um, marine mammals, wild animals belonging in the wild, and why, and how you can help. So all that is covered in the maybe 25-minute documentary that would be donated to schools. We've already done one about eight years ago that went to 430 schools, and now it's time to update it to add more vegan content because the schools are more open to that depending on, of course, how it's, you know, uh, transmitted. Now, mm-hmm. the uh, Animal Hero documentary that we're working on for adults is a little more hard-hitting, and that is where we're saying why. I mean, why it's important to educate. What is it that we're educating for, to liberate who or to help who? So that's mm-hmm. obviously more hard-hitting and more for adults. And we're hoping that this will inspire people to make compassionate choices in their own lives. And, of course, we're looking for producers, um, sponsors, experts in film, anyone to help us. Because, as you know, um, the only way sometimes to learn something is to actually do it and just jump right in into the water and achieve it. Uh, however, it's nice to get a little help along the way or if anybody wants to join us. We're very collaborative in knowing that the group, the whole neighborhood can help and it could be a better product and more effective if more people join us and collaborate with us. Because we're all mm-hmm. volunteer, it's not like anyone's expecting to get paid with money, obviously, but just um, – paid with knowing that a job is well done 
And mm-hmm. speaking and of film which, has so much power. I mean, I knew that before I became involved with the prayer for compassion, but it's it's just thrilling to see yeah. how a, a documentary film with a small budget, once it's there, and if it's got that message and it's got that neck and people want to keep watching it, then people want to show it. I mean, all over the world, we're having screenings in Dubai and Hong Kong and Perth, Australia, and a big uh, premiere in London on, on May 23rd. I mean, it's a big deal. So I'm so excited about your documentary, both of them, because getting to the kids is really, truly where it's at. So Susan, if you could look ahead 10 years, what kind of world do you see? Well, if, if I could look ahead 10 years, I see, well, first of all, think about when you and I turned vegan, the vegan products that were available, the type of soy milk and the type of soy cheese. So we've already come <laughs> further ahead. So, <laughs> what cheese? <laughs> yeah, the, the soap. I'm referring to the soap-like cheese. And, but now today, amazing differences. Now I yes. see, obviously, the world becoming more and more vegan. And for for Animal Hero Kids, I would like to see that we have an Animal Hero Kids Hall of Fame with all of our Animal Hero Kids awards winners, which I want to make sure to mention that we're having a November 2nd Animal Hero Kids celebration that if anyone listening knows an Animal Hero Kid or teen or even a group who has helped or is helping other animals, whether that be in advocacy or direct action rescue, then you can nominate them on our website at animalherokids.org and just click on the nominate for that. But I would love to see an Animal Hero Kids Hall of Fame education center that kids from all over come and visit and do internships and learn firsthand how to help other animals. Of course, it would be a vegan cafe and teaching school, too. Ooh, so love that's, it. That's, so that's cool. where I would like to see Animal Hero Kids be. And uh, as far as the world, I think that the, the type of things that Animal Hero Kids does, the education, is the answer. It's wonderful to have sanctuaries. We really need it, and it's a very soothing thing for us all to see an animal helped. It's just like a little drop in the in the lake or the ocean. We need to stop the tap of animal abuse, and the only way we're going to do that is turn it off at the source and foster empathy from a young age so people are aware that we are all animals. And that was the name of our first documentary that went to the schools. We're all animals. Be an animal hero. We're all animals. Once Aww. people realize that, it will affect everything. Yeah. And kids get that. You know, the, we, we get them stuffed animals because we know they're going to yeah. relate to the animals. Well, Susan Hargreaves, Animal Hero Kids, you are a hero. Animalherokids.org. Check them out online. Hey, be an executive producer for their movie. It's lots of fun. It'll change your life. <laughs> Thanks again, Susan. Everybody else, stay with us. We'll be back with Dr. Holly Roberts right after this. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's Rev. Paul Hasselbeck with a Unity Teachable Moment, taken from a talk at Unity on the River in Amesbury, Massachusetts. All good is defined as divine mind, God, and I love this, the principle of divine benevolence that permeates the universe. So God is not good like a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout. God is the good, the principle of benevolence. And benevolence is basically the disposition to do good or to treat others well and things like that. And so, so in that moment, when, you, when you're not wanting to offer grace to somebody, you can remember at the very point of view is this principle of benevolence. And as we remember that, we can draw on it and then we use that principle to offer grace. To find more from Rev. Paul Hasselbeck, visit the radio archives at unityonlineradio.org. Get your copy of Unity Magazine this month and deepen your spiritual journey. Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber talks about the need to make a holy shift. Carolyn Mace gets gutsy with God. Justine Willis-Toms dives into new dimensions. And Alberto Violdo shares an excerpt from his new book, Heart of the Shaman. Subscribe for one year and save $5 off the cover price and get the digital edition free. Go to unitymagazine.org and get a free trial issue today. Daily Word has developed beautiful card decks to support your spiritual journey. One deck is about healing. Another is about finding peace in troubled times. And the family cards are two decks, one for parents and one that can be colored on for children. So families can talk about spiritual principles together. The card decks are available from Unity. Go to unity.org, then click on Shop or call 1-800-24-UNITY Monday through Friday. The world is full of people with amazing stories. I'm Diane Ray and make plans to join me every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Central for my radio show, Be Present. Each week, I invite you to join in the conversation as I talk to guests about health and wellness, spirituality, metaphysics, philosophy, and a lot more. I want to share information that you can apply to your life today. Listen live or download the show later on demand. I hope you can tune in here on unityonlineradio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, and I am so happy to be speaking with you today and both of my wonderful guests. I do want to do a shout-out right now to our sponsor. I don't talk about them on every program, but these products are so helpful. I'm just honored that I'm able to share them with you. 
We're talking about complement, and I've talked to you before about the spray. That's vitamin B12, vitamin D3, and omega-3s in the form of DHA and EPA, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids that you can absolutely use, and that this wonderful spray is just very quick, and you don't have to even swallow pills, and if you put Main Street Vegan in the discount box, you get 10% off, and that's all cool. Well, guess what? My good friends at alpineorganics.co, and they're friends of yours too. You know these people, um, Matt Frazier from No Meat Athlete, Dr. Pamela Ferguson, the wonderful PhD registered dietitian who's been on the show, and now Dr. Joel Kahn, MD, has joined forces with them on a new product, which is called Complement Plus. And in addition to the B12, D3, and omega-3s, You get iodine, zinc, selenium, which are minerals that can be a little bit tough to get as a vegan and kind of for a lot of people, and also vitamin K2, which according to Dr. Kahn is arguably the most important food supplement available for overall health with as many as 90% of people at risk for deficiency. So this is a regular capsule that you swallow, all vegan, of course, by vegans from vegans. And you can check that out at the same website, alpineorganics.co. And if you want to order Complement Plus and save some money because you listen to this program, you still put in Main Street Vegan in caps, but you put the plus sign after it, Main Street Vegan Plus, and save some money on a great new product. So thanks to... uh, Compliment and the nice people at Alpine Organics. Now, speaking of nice people, I love it when I meet people through their books. I always wish when I used to read the classics that there was a way to get to know Shakespeare and Dickens. And when I read a book in the past six months or so called Vegetarian Christian Saints, I knew that I wanted to meet the writer and I tracked her down. But what I didn't know was not only is Dr. Holly Roberts a PhD in Eastern religion and philosophy who had written a book about Western religion and philosophy, she's also a medical doctor. She's a retired OBGYN, and she wrote the book, Your Vegetarian Pregnancy. So golly, Dr. Roberts, as I was saying during the break, a lot of people are interested in things, but very few people get doctorates in both of them. So welcome very much to the program. Thank you, Victoria. It's a privilege to be on your program. Thank you. Ah, Thank you. Well, tell us your story. How, How did all these things happen for you? Do you mean becoming a physician or writing my vegetarian books? All of the above. What's the catalyst? My catalyst to becoming a physician was at age 13 when I needed surgery. When I woke up and saw this man who never said a word to me, because in those days when you were a child, you know, they only spoke to adults. When I realized he had saved my life, I decided that's what I need to do in this lifetime, to save lives. And and I was blessed, fortunate enough to be able to become a physician. And um, that was how I became a physician. Then wow, that's... becoming a, a vegetarian 
Sure. Yeah, I somehow it came to me as a young child that when we were eating meat, you know, given names, beef or meat, that's an animal's body. And um, I just couldn't bear to eat it. And, and at age 13, my parents permitted me to no longer eat meat, fish, chicken. And, um, I mean, thank goodness I that that message came to me. It, it, you know, it had nothing to do with health or nutrition because I knew nothing about health and nutrition. When people would say, what would you do for your protein? What will you do for anything? You know, I'd say, I don't know, but I'm not going to take the life of another being. And then, of course, over the years, I learned all the benefits, which are a side benefit, but even if the benefits of being vegetarian were not there, I still have to be one. Ah, that's beautiful. So let's fast forward a bit. You have now become a physician, and what led you to write your vegetarian pregnancy? Okay, well, when I had been an obstetrician, I had so many patients come to me, leaving other physicians who had told them that they needed to eat meat in their pregnancy, and they knew they didn't. And um, so they certainly weren't going to stay with someone who didn't have compassion towards animals or didn't have enough understanding of the fact that you don't need to eat muscle to create muscle, you know. Um, and, but I thought of all the people who didn't have another physician to go to. And then, you know, when pregnant women are taught, well, you need to eat flesh, you know, for the health of your fetus, then, of course, they think you need, you need and and your child needs to eat flesh, to eat meat, to eat another being's body when they're two years old, when they're three years old, when they're 10 years old. And it perpetuates this, this concept in society that people need to eat the flesh of other beings for their health. So I think it's important to start at the very beginning. We do not need it. Adults, fetuses, children do not need it. Oh, I don't think you're on Twitter, but that's a great tweet. Adults, fetuses, and children do not need it. Yes. <laughs> Love yes. that. Now, you mentioned your, your publisher, or at least, I guess, your first publisher uh, in some of the notes that you sent to me, and, and you worded this so interesting. You said that you were led to Simon & mm-hmm. Schuster. How did that happen? Well, when I wanted to get my... My vegetarian pregnancy book, of course, had many medical facts, but to me, the essence was the spiritual part, such as my statements, um, you don't need to take life to create life. And so it was a spiritual and medical vegetarian pregnancy book, and I went, I gave it to many literary agents to try to get into a major publisher, and none of them would take it. And they all said, there's no such thing as being a spiritual or a compassionate vegetarian. And of course there was. And then by chance a a Catholic nun had called me. I'm not I'm not Catholic, I'm not Christian. A Catholic nun had called me to see if I would lecture at her retreat center. And 
we started discussing, I told her the different things that I that I could lecture on, you know, malignancy and teenage. Did I lose you, Dr. Roberts? I am hearing silence. Oh, oh, I, I oh, think I'm there. Not. You are. Okay. okay, there you are. The last thing we yeah. heard was literacy. Um. Oh, about literary agents. No, the the things that the nun said. Uh, you you oh, that oh, you were telling the nun that you could speak about. That I could speak about, and when we were talking, I told her that I had written this book, and she had published some some books. And I told her it was a spiritual vegetarian pregnancy book and no one wanted it. And she said, oh, she was going on a silent retreat for a month. And could I, could I give her a copy of my manuscript? She'd like to read it. And I said, of course. And I still never met her. I went to her center, dropped off my manuscript. I didn't see her that whole month. We were still total strangers to one another. And when she came back in a month and she said, I read your spiritual vegetarian pregnancy book and loved it. And please don't tell anyone. It was a silent retreat, but I wasn't silent. I liked it so much. I called my friend whose daughter is an editor for Simon & Schuster. Oh. And they would like to see a copy of your book. And so I went down, I, I live in Manhattan, I went down to the main post office at 34th Street to mail my manuscript, and the woman, the postal woman at the desk um, helped me, you know, because I wanted to secure this manuscript to make sure it was insured, and, and, and it got to Simon and & Schuster. And when she waited, and obviously she saw Simon and Schuster and knew it was a manuscript, and she looked up at me and she said, I'll pray for you. <gasps> and oh. it went to Simon and Schuster, and within two weeks they accepted it unanimously. So, oh, what a story! Divine That's... intervention. This book needed to be published, not wow. through a literary agent, not through people making money through spiritual people. Oh, that, that is beautiful. That speaks to my writer's heart. Oh my goodness. So when you did this, had you already gone for your master's and I think ultimately your PhD, yeah. is that right? In uh, yeah. Eastern yeah. religion and philosophy? You know, yeah, no, I hadn't. You know, I wanted to learn more about how to touch people spiritually, compassionately about becoming vegetarian. And I recognized that as a physician, it was very difficult to change people's lifestyles just by talking about low-density lipids. You know, most people have to be touched at a deeper, more sensitive level. And so I wanted to understand, first I wanted to understand Christianity. You know, we live in a 96% Christian country. And so I started taking courses and was accepted. I, I lived in New Jersey then at a small Catholic college, Georgian court, and I was accepted and I obtained a master's in theology to understand um, sort of 
the spiritual foundation. And for my for my thesis, I wrote the template for vegetarian Christian saints. And then, of course, I wrote an entire book. I wanted to find out about what in the essence, the, the initial essence of Christianity, um, I knew there had to be vegetarians, and but yet there was no other book um, written about vegetarian, you know, in, early, in the early roots of Christianity. So I kept traveling back and forth to um, a very to a wonderful library at Fordham University Library to these ancient primary manuscripts written by by the ancient Jesuit priests who had determined who would be canonized to be, to become saints for the Catholic Church. And at that and at that time actually it was a unified Eastern and Western Christian Church. And when I started reading these manuscripts there was so many people who had been canonized, but there was no word vegetarian. You know, Victoria, this is a recent a recent term, you know, from England from the time Gandhi was there, you know, vegetarian. So I realized I was reading through the manuscripts. I had to find these two phrases. Never would he take the life of any being, and never would his or her lips touch flesh. So they were vegetarian would not take the life of any being, and their lips would never touch flesh. And I read through hundreds and thousands of manuscripts about people who were canonized by the early church and found 150 beautiful, pure souls, really in the roots, the essence of Christianity, who were vegetarian because they would not take the life of any being. And... What was their motivation? Compassion. Compassion. Not, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not harm. Just seeing the essence of God in every being, not to cause suffering. These were such beautiful people. Mm. And, I, and so in my book, I have 150 of them. And... Um, well, t- tell us one story. Tell us one of these early saints who never touched flesh and would never take the life of any being. Well, some of the some of the early Egyptian saints, the monastic ones, uh, like Saint Anthony, um, just you know they lived in nature, and I guess that's part of our problem. You know, here people get meat packaged, you know, in plastic, and they don't realize it's an animal. But they're, they're called the desert saints or the de- desert sages. And early roots of Christianity, and they lived, a lot of them were monastic, and just lived um, as we should be, as, as Mahatma Gandhi says we should be, live in nonviolence, nonabundance, and with compassion. And, and just to, well, to bring Gandhi in, into this, you know, in our world, the way we harm other beings and harm the environment, Mahatma Gandhi said, and, and just the act of living creates some sort of violence. You know, we have to use the plants. We have to use the planet. But, but anything we do in abundance, more than we have to, 
is an act of violence to this planet and an act of violence to other beings. And um, that's what these desert saints recognized because they lived in nature and that's what Gandhi recognized. And that's what's happening nowadays, you know, with fossil fuels and of course with with deforestation, with all the meat eaters, just cutting down the tropical rainforest to graze to graze animals, you know. Mm-hmm. It's all an act of violence to the animals on the planet. So with these saints that you studied, how much of their vegetarianism do you think grew from their being followers of Jesus Christ and how much of it was this living in nature and and just the kind of people that they were? I'm asking that simply because, as you said, 96% Christian country, but there's there's no greater percentage of Christians that are vegetarian than anybody else. That's true in our in our country. In, in our country, um, yeah. Um, you see, I don't. It's hard to say. You know, this concept, this total concept of feeding a multitude of people with fish, I don't really think they meant fish. I think they meant food, you know. Yes. Well, I can tell you a story, Dr. Roberts, if if you're willing. Um, Professor Rin Berry, who who wrote uh, Famous Vegetarians and Their Favorite Recipes and Food for the Gods, Vegetarianism in the World's Religion, translated the New Testament from the Greek. And in his experience, he said that the word fish everywhere in the New Testament is just the Greek word for fish. There's no argument about that. But in that story of the so-called loaves and fishes, the word translates first as a relish, something that you would serve with loaves, second meaning dessert, third meaning little fishes. And his conclusion was that some translator just thought it was more miraculous to multiply fishes Mm -hmm. than baba ganoush. (laughs) I love that. That, that Isn't that great? So much sense. Because I can't envision Jesus taking the life of any being. Um, and there's something else interesting. When I studied theology, and and I also took some uh, biblical Greek, ancient Greek, you know, we had to study. And in one of those phrases, when they say that Jesus said, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Yes. It, it really says you have turned my father's house into a meat market. Meat <gasps> market. Oh my goodness! The translators and scribes just didn't like that word. I guess <laughs> didn't like it. And a den of thieves. Wow. And, and, and you know what else can you take? What can be more of a thief than taking a life? Exactly. A life of any being, right? Wow. Well, with Easter coming this Sunday, I am having people over for vegan mac and cheese, and then we're going to watch the John Legend Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) And now when the scene comes of overturning the money changers in the temple, I'm going to say meat market. Mm. That's stunning. Gosh. Stunning. And and, um, 
of course, I have my vegetarian Passover and always with tofu, and it's always an awesome success because how can you celebrate a holiday with taking the life of another being? It's so true. So, And thank you for bringing up the seders because for anybody that doesn't know, go on to the site of jewishveg.org because they're hosting vegan seders in many parts of the country. On April 23rd, I will be at the one here in New York City and um, they're selling tickets through tomorrow, um, April 18th. So if uh, you would like to experience that, whether you are of the Jewish faith or not, everybody is welcome. So, Dr. Roberts, let's move on then to some of the Eastern religions, because this is what you mm-hmm. got your PhD in. So when I think about eclecticism, oh my goodness, you, you're just practically part of every religion on earth. So talk about being eclectic and then talk about uh, vegetarianism coming from India and other parts of the eastern part of this globe. Well, um, after, I, after I studied theology, my thirst for more knowledge increased because I began wondering why with our Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, why don't we think about other beings, you know, whatever happened to thou shall not kill, there's no except after that, you know, guess thou shall not kill. And why in the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, which Buddhism is derived from Hinduism, why do they value life, see sanctity in all life? And uh, just to mention my, my husband, now deceased, he was Hindu from India, and actually, as a condition of marriage, he was he was not raised vegetarian. But I told him I would marry him if in the home if we did not take the life of any beings. And he thought about it quickly, and he said yes, because you know because half of India is vegetarian, and and. Um, he was so accepting of this and then became super vegetarian. But, ah. <laughs> um, but um, so I decided I wanted, of course, I needed to study Eastern religions. And so I went to San Francisco to California Institute of Integral Studies. It's a large graduate school university, just master's PhD. And there was a program in Eastern religion and philosophy, which was wonderful. So I got to study Hinduism, Buddhism, Chinese philosophy, Jainism, you know, Taoism. And, um, and the basic Hindu philosophy, the Hindu teachings are, are these portions of text, the texts are called the Vedas, but the portions are the Upanishads. And the Upanishads are very ancient teachings 10,000 years ago. So Hinduism is an extremely evolved religion. You know, Judaism just is about 3,000, 4,000 years ago. This is 10,000 years. And it evolved from a time when years back they, they believed in animal sacrifices, as in so many ancient religions. You know that God was, if God needed to take a life, let it be a lower form of life rather than a human, you know. 
And but then it evolved because you know in Hinduism we have maligned it so much. We believe it's polytheistic. They have all different gods, and it's not that at all. Hindus see God in every being, every creature, every person, every leaf. It is all God. It's all an essence of this great unknown. And and anything you take, you have to be thankful for, sanctify, bless, and certainly not take the life of any being. It's mm. the essence of God. And then, that is so- you, you, you know, um, Buddha initially was a Hindu, and um, and so he perpetuated and brought Buddhism then to the Oriental world, you know, up to Tibet and China and Japan. Oh, it's fascinating and wonderful. And you know what? People like you are bringing it out into the Western world and, and even on our program going all over the world. This message is getting out there. And thank you so, so very much, Dr. Holly Roberts, for being part of that. In fact, thanks to both of our guests today. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. And I'm going to say, well, until I come up with another tagline that maybe you'll think of, God bless you. Lots and lots. And eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.